Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38 seems like a rude intrusion into the beautiful story of Joseph. We just started our series on Joseph last week, and here we are, and we're not on Joseph. Moses has has brought us to a point of suspense. Joseph has been sold as a slave, and then he he switches scene on us, and we're looking at Judah. But does he do that just because he's a great storyteller? Well, no, that's not simply the reason. In actual fact, Joseph is almost, you could say, an intrusion into the story of Judah. Judah is the key player in the whole of the Old Testament of all the tribes of Israel. But the last you met Judah last week, he was a wicked man. He was suggesting selling off his brother, uh, Joseph, into slavery in Egypt, not caring about his father and his father's love for Joseph. Uh, Judah wanted rid of this troublesome child of Jacob's other wife. And Judah wanted rid of him. So, And then we're going to read later on of Judah doing something very different. Instead of taking... Thank you, thank you. Instead of Judah taking an opportunity to get rid of the other son, Benjamin, of that other wife that his father Jacob had, Judah, we find, is going to be pleading for Benjamin's life. In fact, he says, take me instead. And we see great concern for his father, uh, his father Jacob, Don't let my father's grey head go down to the grave like this. What has happened to Judah? How has Judah gone from being a callous, brother-hating individual to a tender, brother-loving, self-sacrificing individual? There's got to be something to explain the change. And actually, it's Genesis chapter 38. Moses tells us this story to to help us see how Judah transforms and becomes the leader of the children of Israel. And not only that, the whole chapter is going to act as a great contrast with the Joseph story. And especially with next week's chapter where Joseph finds himself in a compromising situation and In contrast with Judah, Joseph runs. He gets out. And so it acts as a contrast with Joseph, but it also acts to show us what happened to Judah. And of course, the first thing that we start to see as we look at Judah is that he doesn't improve immediately. Chapter 38, as you read it, you find that it starts just after Joseph is sold into slavery. It starts with uh, Jacob getting married uh, and then 
Jacob having sons that grow up and those sons reach an age where they can marry uh, and probably 20 plus 23, 24 years pass between the beginning of chapter 38 and the end of chapter 38. And so by the time we're getting to the end of chapter 38 and we're seeing the first glimmers of change in Judah, if we were to fit to stretch that bit of the chapter out and put it in its right chronological place, we would find that it's happening just before Judah appears, before the second in command of Egypt, his brother Joseph. He doesn't know that it's his brother Joseph. But just before that moment, Jacob, or Judah rather, has been being transformed by God. So, uh, remember that as we go through this. 20 years are passing and this is, this is, this, this, all this chapter doesn't happen before the next events. The 20 plus years of Judah's, Judah's life are compressed into one chapter here to let us see something of his character. We see the dysfunctionality of Jacob's family. We see it in this fourth son. We've seen the dysfunctionality of Reuben. Uh, earlier, uh, we, we, found, we read of Je- Reuben sleeping with one of his father's concubines. We read of Simeon and Levi, sons number two and three, slaughtering a city. And here, uh, and here we see um, number four son. He's no better. Judah is accelerating in his downhill departure from his godly heritage. Three things that we want to see. We're going to look at the main characters, Judah and Tamar, and then the main character, God. First of all, Judah, what a letdown. What a letdown Judah is. Judah's decline is mapped out for us starkly in this chapter. In different steps, we see that there is nothing redeeming about this man. And there's five steps of failure that we see. First of all, he fails to keep himself distinct. God's people were to be separate from the peoples around them. That's not what we see with Judah. Verses 1 and 2 are significant. In fact, if you're using the English Standard Version, you'll find it is it translates the Hebrew in a more literal way that captures the point that Moses is making. The NIV is often more readable, but it, it loses something um, by not using the exact words and phrases at times. We'll see that as we go through this. The ESV starts off, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside. Now, the NIV has left his brothers and went down to stay. It's the same idea, but the other is very pointed. He went down. He left the heights of Hebron, where God's people were, and he went down to the fertile plains uh, where the Canaanites lived. Do you remember, that's what Lot did. He left the hill country and went down to the fertile plains near Sodom and Gomorrah. He's left his brothers. He's left the family of God. That's a significant phrase. And that little phrase uh, that the ESV translates, turned aside to a certain man. It's significant. He's left them. 
He's turned aside. He's gone away. He's left the promised land. He's left the promised people. And he has hooked up with a new best mate. An Adullamite whose name was Hira. And you know, Moses is a great author. And when he repeats something, you start to see that it should have significance. And he repeats this man's name or identity in verse 12, where we're told that Hira is his friend. And in verse 20, he speaks of his friend, the Adullamite, again. That's significant. The Canaanites were a godless, wicked, perverse, depraved people. They had all sorts of sexual practices and fertility rites. They engaged in child sacrifice uh, as well. And God's people were not to be consorting, hanging out with such people. We've seen it go wrong before. Lot moves his tent towards Sodom. And it's the ruination of Lot. God had said to Judah's great-grandfather Abraham that God would destroy the Canaanites because they were so astonishingly wicked. What does Judah do? Abraham's great-grandson. He goes and he hangs out with the Canaanites. And then we read that he takes a wife from among them. And that's not just a a by-the-way comment. If you were one of the children of Israel listening to the history as this is being read to you about an hour ago in the story, maybe not even that much, you would have had Abraham anguished that his son Isaac might take a wife from amongst the Canaanites. So he sends his chief servant on a thousand mile round trip to get a wife from amongst his own people so that Isaac doesn't marry a Canaanite. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, is deeply concerned that her son Jacob will marry a Canaanite because despite his father Esau had gone and done that very thing and brought great sorrow on the family. And so Rebecca sends Jacob on that same colossal journey to get a wife, not amongst the Canaanites. And here's Judah's son, or Jacob's son Judah, happily marrying a Canaanite woman. And in fact, Moses, again, the very words that he uses highlight, and again the NIV uh, translates it as met and married. But let me give you a more strict translation of the Hebrew words. He saw and took. Does that ring any bells? Saw and took. Well, that's what Eve did. She saw that the fruit of the tree was good and she took. It's what the, 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 the sons of men and the, the, did when they saw that the daughters of men were pleasing. When the sons, the sons of God, the, the believing family line, saw that the daughters of men, the unbelieving family line in Genesis 6, were beautiful. And they took them as their wives. That phrase has baggage. And it's not good baggage. Moses is saying to us, here's Judah doing something he knows that he shouldn't do. He's following his desires. 
his drives, his passions, his lusts. He's in the wrong place. He's never going to be able to set his desire on something that God would approve of because he's in the wrong place. And here's this dangerous intermingling and loss of identity. And here's a warning for us about who are our friends? Who influences us? Where do we spend our time, either in the people we hang out with or the places that we go on the internet or the places that we go in real life? Who are the people that we spend our time with? Because the great danger is that we take on their habits and values. Who are our closest friends? And and young people, here's application for you. Do you see Judah stepping away from the people of God? And the people that he's hanging out with are coloring him and shaping him. And it's going to bring great calamity into his life. Please, my dear young people, pay careful attention to the people that you are friends with. It's not wrong to be friends with people who aren't Christians. But we need to be careful that we are not being influenced by them because it's far more likely that they will influence us than we will influence them. That they will pull us into their ways than we will pull them into our ways. Because they need to see that we are different from them. And our great temptation when we're with them is to tone down our difference. And if we are radically different from them, then they don't want to hang out with us. And yet the very thing that they need is to see that we are radically different. So they will see that sin is wrong and that Jesus is right. And that doesn't happen if we're trying to fit in and blend in. And Judah is seeking to blend in. So he fails to keep himself distinct. He fails as a father. Judah's three sons, Ur, Onan and Shelah, at least 17, 18 years pass. And Judah is so thoroughly wrapped up in the culture that he sees nothing wrong with getting a wife for his son from among the Canaanites, Tamar. And then we read in verse 7 an incredible statement. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. In Genesis 6 When every inclination of the hearts of all men were only evil all the time, God gave man about a hundred years to hear and to repent. When God told Abraham that the Canaanites were astonishingly perverse and wicked, he said, I'm going to give them 400 years. Whatever Ur was up to, he got no time. Struck dead. The first execution by God, that we read of in Scripture, of an individual. He must have been exceptionally wicked. Judah has not passed anything of godliness on to his son. And then we have this thing that to us seems really bizarre. Judah says to his second son, Onan, that he's to marry his sister-in-law, Tamar, that it's his duty to produce a son for his dead brother. This was a custom in the ancient world, in biblical culture and in the surrounding cultures, that the next unmarried brother would marry the sister-in-law. And the first son that they would have would take the name of the deceased 
brother-in-law. It was a way of keeping the family line going so that property uh, would be preserved and so that the widow would be taken care of. There's no social services and it's still this family's duty to take care of Tamar. She has been entrusted into their care. But Onan does the maths. Onan does the maths. So initially Onan is son number two of three. Son number one is to get a double portion. Two gets his share and three gets the same share. So what would happen is Judah's property would be divided in four. Son one would get two parts. Son two would get a part. Son three would get a part. So at that rate of going, Onan had 25%. Heir is now dead. So the property will be divided between two of them. And if he gets a double share, he gets 66%. It's divided in three, and he gets a double portion. He gets two-thirds. Shelah gets one-third. Oh, he's gone from 25% to 66%. He's, that's the best investment ever in terms of rate of growth. And he thinks, well, hold on a minute. If I father a child with Tamar, he gets the double portion that heir should have got of my father's inheritance, I'm back down to 25% again. No, thank you. Not at all. Uh, And so he does the maths. And he says no. But that doesn't stop him going into Tamar and pretending to act on behalf of his dead brother. And we're told in verse 9 that whenever he went in, He did this repeatedly. He misused and abused this poor woman. He was meant to be acting for her care. And all he can think of is his own pleasure and financial well-being. What utter wickedness. And God brings judgment on him too. Judah has not instilled any godliness into his children. And you would think that at this point he should be saying to his son, this is wicked and stop it, but there's no record of that. And instead of seriously considering God's judgment on his sons at this point, Judah plows on with life. He sees no connection. He took no pause. And you know, here's a lesson for us. We need to heed God's wake-up calls in our lives. We need to heed God's wake-up calls in our lives. Whenever something is happening, we need to listen and learn. We need to check, those of us who are parents, habits and traits in our children that are going to grow and develop into godlessness and wickedness and rebellion. He failed as a father. He fails as a father-in-law as well. He blames Tamar as if she is somehow cursed. He he refuses to give her, his third son, Shelah. He doesn't tell her that. He pretends he's going to do it. But verse 11 gives us an insight into his thought life. How do we know that? Well, something has happened Judah later on. He has changed and transformed and he's obviously told his descendants and it's been passed down to Moses. I said this, but this is what I was thinking. That's what sort of a man I was. And he's not going to support his daughter. In fact, he shoves the woman that had been entrusted to his clan, he shoves her back to her clan, her family. And he deceives her. He casts her off. 
he airbrushes her out of his family history. He was to care for the widows and the orphans, but he throws her away. He fails as a father-in-law, and then he fails morally. We're meant to be sort of getting to the point where we're seeing Judah's transformation. But it's a long downhill slide, and it's very fast and very black. He fails morally. Many days pass. There's no sign of Judah giving Shelah to Tamar. Judah's own wife dies, and it's now sheep shearing time. And that's a time of festivity, a time of partying. And Canaan had its great religious rituals. And one of them, one of their religious beliefs was that fertility of the crops and the animals was a gift from the gods. And you could encourage the gods to give the gift of fertility to the earth by being promiscuous and fertile yourselves. And so around sheep shearing time and harvest time, they engaged in ritualized promiscuity. Even married women would become shrine women at festival time. It was their religious duty to encourage the gods to give fertility to the earth. Because the Bible is not remotely endorsing that. That's just what they believed. And here we see Judah going and hanging out with his buddy Hira again. You could almost imagine Judah, or maybe even Hira coming to Judah and saying, Go on, let's time to stop the mourning It's sheep shearing time. Let's go and hang out with the boys. Here we go. This will put a smile on your face again. And Tamar, we'll come to her actions in a moment. She puts on a veil to hide her identity, to give the impression that that she is one of these shrine women. The whole thing is utterly, utterly questionable. But surely... Surely the standout thing in this is Tamar's certainty that Judah would fall for it. What does that tell us about Judah? She thinks, if I go and stand at the side of the road, that's a dead cert. Judah will be over like flies round a honeypot. And sure enough, Sure enough, Judah comes to her. What does that tell us? Was it the talk of the town and the countryside that Judah couldn't keep himself to himself? What a tragic mess for one of God's people to be in. You know, and of course, as far as the Canaanites were concerned, boys will be boys, that's fine. But that's not good enough for God's people. There are many things in the world around us says is fine, but God doesn't agree. And we are called to take our standards from God's word and not the world. And then, fifthly, he fails in his integrity. What a double-talking hypocrite. Do you see it? Oh yes, he's very honest. He wants to make sure the goat gets to her. But, three months later, whenever... His daughter-in-law, whom he has cast off and is living at her father or at her father's house, is discovered to be pregnant. He who had wanted nothing to do with her suddenly has an opinion on the matter. Suddenly he's offended for his son's honour. What a hypocrite. Usual double standards of many men. He calls her to be burned to death. <laughs> 
for her promiscuity. A man who's virtually famous for his. He'd done exactly the same thing. He demands the most severe penalty. I wonder, did he see it as a, a handy way to get rid of her? <laughs> this will get that woman out of our lives for good. This is, this is just, this is perfect. But what a hypocrite. You know, you see, it's easy to be severe on others, isn't it, for the same sins that we commit. It's easy to be severe. And here this challenges us to check if our lives are marked by any such hypocrisy. Judah, what a letdown. What a letdown. And what a warning he is to us, to us all. But what a warning he is particularly to our young people who have grown up either in Christian homes or coming to church. Judah was brought up in a house that knew God. He knew the ways of God, unlike Hiram and his Canaanite friends. His father was a believer. His grandfather was Isaac. His great-grandfather was Abraham. Yet it didn't make any difference. He's wasting the blessings that he had. Judah, what a letdown. What a tragic, tragic disaster. What a terrible descent away from God and his ways. Secondly, and thirdly, we'll have two, but much more briefly, Tamar. What a surprise. Tamar, what a surprise. It's easy to see Judah's flaws. It's easy to raise eyebrows at Tamar's behavior. Culturally, it's hard for us to get the point. But Judah got the point. His words are surprising, are they not? Verse 26. She is more righteous than I. Again, more literally, she is righteous, not I. She is righteous, Judah says. She's righteous. She says, what? We would say, how could she be righteous? But she is righteous, he says. And this is actually the turning point in Judah's life this moment. And Tamar is the one under God responsible for it. Three things to note. There's Tamar's loyalty. That's what's surprising. Tamar's loyalty. Tamar, her ethics are questionable without doubt. Although in her background, such a thing was permissible. If a son, if a husband died and the brother died and there's no one left to fulfill the responsibility of producing an heir, the father of the sons, her father-in-law, was considered by the Canaanites or the Hittites a valid option. But not biblically. But it's what's clear, although Tamar's methods are wrong, there is an unquestionable loyalty to Judah's family, to Er's family. Most Canaanite women pulled their family towards Canaanite practices and stayed with their own clan. But this woman is wanting to stay part of Judah's clan. She is wanting to honor that clan. She's being loyal and faithful to them. She's still wearing her widow's clothes after several years of grieving. She takes her 
her widow's garments off to dress for going to the shrine. She shows greater commitment to God's people than God's people show to God's people. There's a tremendous loyalty. It would have been easy for her to go back to her father's family to write off the time that she spent involved with the children of Jacob. But she doesn't want to be a Canaanite anymore. And she remains true to her Israelite family even if they don't remain true to her. Despite their abuse and their lies and their hypocrisy, she is remaining faithful to them. She's determined to provide an heir for Ur, to provide a grandson for Judah. She's determined to stay with these people. And to do so, she risks her life. Make no mistake about it, she's risking her life here. We see that Judah is going to have her burnt alive. She's leaving herself open to the severest penalty of the law because although Hittite custom allowed for a daughter-in-law to behave like this way to her father-in-law, she got caught being a prostitute, which is what she's being accused of. Then it was the end for her. And yes, she's savvy enough to ask for Jacob's seal, a a clay cylinder that he would have worn around his neck that would have had his imprint on it in some shape or form, some carvings on it that he would have used for sealing documents. She asked for his staff. But what if, what if he had said certainly not and just walked off and left her? What if he had beaten her up and left her the side of the road and she's pregnant and she's got no proof that it was Jacob? She's outstandingly brave. Wrong in her choice of actions, but incredibly committed. And Scripture, then the second thing is, is Scripture honours Tamar for this. These people understood it. She's born a Canaanite in the darkest of religious backgrounds, but she's the one that God is working in. And God honours her brave commitment. She's given two sons. Two sons. A blessing from God to her. She hadn't been able to get pregnant before. Now, she has twins. Here's God showing and blessing her determined commitment. Not her wrong actions, but her determined commitment. And it's not the last we hear of Tamar. In the book of Ruth, she is mentioned again in the family line of King David. And the New Testament honors her by placing her name in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of only four women mentioned in that. She's honoured and exalted. And that's because Tamar wasn't simply loyal and honoured, but she had an impact. She had an impact. Humanly speaking, it was her actions that caused the transformation of Judah. This is a moment where it's a bit like that moment with David and Nathan, where David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan tells a story about a a farmer and a poor man, and the farmer, the rich man, nicks the poor man's sheep and offers, cooks it up for a meal for a rich guest. And David is outraged, and Nathan points the finger at David and says, you are the man. This is a you are the man moment. Whenever she says, do you know whose seal this is? And this staff, that's a you are the man 
moment. And Judah is convicted. And Judah confesses, she is righteous, not me. And that is the start of the change of Judah. He's going to transform into someone who suggested selling a brother into slavery to someone who would lay down his life for a brother. He's going to become a leader throughout the the, the whole of the Old Testament. It's from his family line that the Messiah will come. Here's the transformation. We see the contrast. Reuben, whenever the... whenever, um, Whenever... uh, Reuben, the firstborn son, whenever he's trying to get his father Jacob to go down to Egypt, he says, look, we, we, we need to take Benjamin with us. And if Benjamin doesn't come back, kill my sons. That's what Reuben says. Judah, he says, in a similar situation to Joseph, he says, take me. Take me instead of Benjamin. See the sacrifice? The Old Testament isn't about Joseph's descendants, but about Judas. His tribe will stay faithful. His tribe will walk in God's ways. And the change in this man is caused by this Canaanite woman. And that's why she's honored in Scripture. What a surprise. And then, and then finally, finally, God, what transforming grace. What transforming grace. There is a gospel for Judas and a gospel for Tamar's. There's Judah the dead loss. The man who should have been walking God's ways but wasn't. Is there hope for Judas? Yes, there is. Is there hope for Tamar's? People misused and abused even by God's people. Yes, there is. Is there hope for someone who's Grown up in a Christian home and walked away? Well, it's a very dangerous place to be. Hebrews 6 tells us there's a line that can be crossed, after which there is no coming back. But, lest we despair completely, we read the story of Judah, black and all it is, and we see that there's hope. There's hope for those who have wandered far from the gospel. And maybe there's some in your family and you think of them and they've wandered far from the gospel. They know better. And yet there's hope. There's a gospel for Judas. And there's a gospel for Tamar's. You know, you would think, you would think reading through this, you know, and you would think even sometimes looking at the the life of the church that you could be a second-class Christian. Is Tamar a second-class believer certainly not she is honored she is exalted here's the person who has no history of the gospel or christianity in her family here she's brought in here she is used mightily there's faithless judah and there's committed tamar tamar the canaanite judah one of abraham's great-grandchildren God has no second-class children, no second-class citizens. No matter your background, your past, you might feel like damaged goods. You might feel misused or abused by others. Here you'll find a place. God has a home for you and a purpose in the work of his kingdom. And Tamar joins that list 
of honoured women in the family of Christ. God makes no difference. Each transformed and redeemed and has a key role to play in God's kingdom. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth and Bathsheba. God makes no difference forgiving and bringing in people. The gospel for Judah, the gospel for Tamar, the gospel for you. Here's the gospel of grace. doesn't matter whether you grew up a Christian in a Christian home for generations. It doesn't matter whether we've made a mess. It doesn't matter whether we've been sinning or sinned against. There is grace, forgiveness, cleansing, transformation and purpose. What grace. What amazing grace there is in God. And you know it's incredible to think that our Savior comes into a family line. He's so determined to identify with lost sinful people in his rescue of them. He comes into a family line that has got Canaanite blood, Moabite blood, Hittite blood in it. It runs through his veins as if he says, I've come here to identify with sinners. To rescue them. To show mercy to them. What a saviour we have. So as we look at this unsavoury passage. Let us go away from here warned. Warned. Lest we repeat the mistakes of Judah. Let us be amazed at grace. That God has intervened in our lives. And that God can intervene powerfully in the lives of others and transform them and bring complete change out of utter mess. And let's be filled with hope for ourselves and for others. You would have written Judah off, wouldn't you? You would have said, Tamar, there's no hope for her. But God wasn't finished. And God has had the last word. And one day you'll meet Judah and you'll meet Tamar in heaven because God's grace is powerful and transforming. Amen. Let's, if we're able, stand as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, what a passage of Scripture. What patience you showed. And we marvel at the patience that you have shown to us. And Father in heaven, we marvel at the transformation that you're working. We don't see it finished yet in Judah. But we see the seeds of it sown and we're going to see for the next hundreds of years the change that came about because of this chapter. And Father in heaven, we thank you that you are not a God who is easily dissuaded to give up. But, O Father, we pray, those of us who have known of Christ and have reached out and taken hold of Christ, that we would not depart from your ways, that we would guard our steps and guard our company and guard our integrity and guard our our morality, that we would fulfill the rules that you've given to us to do, be it husbands or fathers or fathers-in-law or whatever you've given to us to do. Lord, let us guard them carefully. And Lord, we pray for those that we know that we might be inclined to give up on, that we might be inclined to think they're too wicked. 
Even people who have grown up in homes where they've heard what's right and wrong and know the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would work in their lives and draw them to Christ. Father, we praise you that in your family there are no second-class children. In your kingdom there are no second-class citizens. But we are honoured and exalted because Christ has rescued us and you have adopted us. Help us to live like your children. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.